ancient world was brimming with magic. Silver-tongued magicians set up shop at markets, hawking their wares of amulets, curse tablets, and even spells. There is a spell for making men who are drinking at a symposium appear as if they have donkey snouts. And I'm always like, why would you need that, right? Like, how many people wanted this spell? I'm not sure. But when early Christianity came along, distinctions were made between magic and miracles ordained by God. If the Holy Spirit is the one who is helping you do a healing, then that's miracle, it's not magic. From Virginia Humanities, this is With Good Reason. I'm Sarah McConnell. Later today, the Dow of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. But first, Shaley Patel studies ancient magic and early Christianity. She says early Christians developed the concept of divine miracle to distinguish themselves from magic. Shaley is a professor of early Christianity at Virginia Tech. Shaley, you argue that ancient magic was essential to the development of Christianity and actually a lot of religions. Explain that. What was going on during the earliest times? Yeah, sure. I mean, so I think the first thing we need to understand is that Christianity is a Roman religion. And part of the Roman cultural context is, you know, these things that we would call magic, things like healings, exorcisms, Raising from the dead may be a little rarer, but not unheard of. And so Christianity arises from this cultural atmosphere in which these sorts of supernatural things are commonplace and incorporates them, right? So if you read the gospel stories, you see Jesus healing, you see exorcisms, you see resurrections. And one of the things that we think is that Christianity becomes popular and is able to spread quickly because what it calls its miracle tradition. And so we know that people like these stories and we know that people were attracted to them. And so it does become essential to the spread of Christianity, but also it becomes essential to how Christians sort of define themselves through the performance of what I'm calling wondrous deeds, um, you know, how Jesus shows that the kingdom of God is coming through his exorcisms and his healings and things like that. So talk a little bit more about the culture of magic. Who was practicing it and how was society seeing these performers of magic at the time? We have this, this class of practitioners And they're really, really hard to distinguish from one another. And that class would include magicians, but also, you know, like philosophers. We think of philosophers as sort of like hanging out in the academy, just thinking, not necessarily doing things, right? Like not engaging in rituals and things like that. That's not entirely true. And so we have this class of what a scholar calls Heidi Went. She calls them freelance religious experts. So they would have been not necessarily affiliated with a particular temple or a particular cult. And I mean that in a neutral sense, but they would have been going around or um, in the marketplace offering things like exorcism spells or amulets or potions or, you know, things like curse tablets where you, let's say, curse your enemy in a legal setting, right? Like you want to tie up their tongue in court, Get a curse tablet, right? Like, um, so these are services that you could you could buy for yourself, and we we know that there's like just this professional class of people who are providing these services. Name some more things people bought into around this time. Oh my gosh, the stories are amazing. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. you know, we have like the, the we have the things that we would expect, right? Like everyday things, amulets for protection from illness or cures for headaches everyday and ailments, right? If you can't sleep. Then we also have like things like love spells, right? Um, So like, you know, if you're in love with somebody and that person happens to be, let's say, in love with somebody else, you can get yourself a love spell to win them back. You have spells for visions. If you want a vision of the gods or if you want to send a vision or a dream or a nightmare, to other people, you can do that. I have some spells that I think are just hilarious because I cannot imagine the reason that you would need this. But there is a spell 
Um, and this is in the uh, what scholars call the Greek magical papyri. It's a spell for making men who are drinking at a symposium appear as if they have donkey snouts from a distance <laughs> and only right. to outsiders. And I'm always like, why would you need that? Right. Like, what is what is the reason for this spell? How many people <laughs> wanted this spell? I'm not sure. Right. <laughs> so when was there sort of a widely accepted and useful market, a receptive market among the populace for people who did this sort of thing? Well, see, now this is the thing, right? Like we're assuming that there is a useful market among the populace because we do have spells, like we have spell books, we have actual cursed tablets, and we have other sort of material that would have been used in ritual practices. But what we also have are literary texts that talk trash about magicians. And so it's kind of hard to to sort of reconcile the fact that we have all of this evidence for what we would call magical practices, but then we also have like this sort of, you know, upper class Roman literati who are like, oh, magicians are terrible. All they do is peddle in lies and charlatanry. So it's always been contested, right? So it seems like, you know, we have this range of practices that were popular. We know that they were popular, that people were participating in, that people were purchasing, engaging in. But at the same time, we also have very powerful detractors who were denouncing magic and and magical practices in their literary works. So when it comes to Christianity and its earliest formation— Give me examples of things you would describe as informed by ancient magic that are alluded to in the Bible. Yeah, so Jesus' healings, Jesus' exorcisms, when Jesus brings Lazarus back from the dead, right? All of those are things that we see other stereotypical magicians doing. We also want to talk about like Peter and the apostles and Paul in the book of Acts, where they do things like Peter's shadow heals. That could also have analogs to magic. So he is doing what a good Christian missionary does, which is preaching the gospel, preaching, you know, the kingdom of God. And people recognize that he has this power to heal because he has been healing. And what they do is they bring people who are sick and they put them out. And as Peter walks by, his shadow falls on them and his shadow is able to heal them. There's another story in Acts where something very similar happens with Paul, where he also is is known as a healer. He's been going around trying to spread the gospel. People know that he can heal and he can exercise. And what they do is they take handkerchiefs that had touched Paul's skin, and they use those handkerchiefs to heal and exercise other people. We can also think of something like in Acts chapter 5, Peter says to these two followers who keep private prophets that they're testing the Holy Spirit and they're going to die. And they die, right? Like he kills with a word. And scholars have made the argument that this is akin to like a magical curse, right? So there are commonalities among the things that Jesus does, that Peter and Paul do, and things that we see other stereotypical magicians doing. So how has Christianity reckoned with the idea that this is magic versus this is a miracle, that that these are gifts from God or the divine, right? Yeah. um, Miracle is a class of activity that Christians sort of own for themselves. They do set up new words and new vocabulary to refer to these activities that others may have called magic. So they use words like signs and wonders. One of the things that 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 difference in language might point to us is that Christians are trying to develop a new vocabulary and they're trying to develop a new class 
of wondrous deed that is uniquely Christian. And so not just the language, meaning, you know, we're going to use different vocabulary, but also they do things like try to differentiate magic from miracle based on divine agency, right? If the Holy Spirit is the one who is helping you do a healing, then that's miracle. It's not magic. Is one of the differences between miracle and magic said to be by Christians one has a higher form of moral integrity? Absolutely. This is one thing that we see in Origen of Alexandria when he argues against this pagan philosopher, Celsus. Celsus has called Jesus a magician. And Origen says, oh, no, no, no. Jesus is not a magician because the things that Jesus does, the miracles that Jesus does, help engender a moral reformation in people. And so this is another way that Christians are sort of trying to distinguish this this tradition, this miracle tradition that they have of Jesus and of Peter and Paul from everyday magicians. And they're sort of trying to elevate their own tradition above and beyond these everyday magicians. Can we tell it was important for them to make that distinction, that, that, that they felt the need to? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, somebody like Origen is absolutely scandalized that anybody would think of Jesus as a magician, right? Because for Origen and other Christians, Jesus is not just a mere magician. He's not like these guys that you can see in the marketplace who are like selling you exorcisms and healings or whatever, right? Jesus is the savior. And so the things that he does have to be different and better, I would argue, than the things that everyday magicians do. So this was fundamental to Christianity to make that distinction between Jesus and everyday sort of magicians. I would imagine that many Christians would balk at the idea that Christianity and magic are intertwined, that there are elements of magic written into the Bible and Bible stories. Why is magic so taboo and likely to feel so raw for Christians? Um, I think that it's because we've had 2,000 years of separating magic from Christianity. And so now we just assume that magic is not just separate from Christianity, but actually a sort of obverse of Christianity. So, you know, when Western powers went out and colonized places in the global South, they called the religious traditions that they found magic in a bid to sort of delegitimize them, right? And say, oh, you guys don't have a real proper religion. What you have is just magic. And I think that discursive moves like that, right? Like when we label people that way, those things kind of stick. And so what we have done over the last 2000 years is not just separate Christianity from magic, not just elevate Christianity from magic, but also use magic to talk about traditions that we don't like, talk about traditions that we want to delegitimize. And because we've done that, I think when I say things like Christianity is indebted to magic, that does sort of, you know, sometimes rub people the wrong way because they're thinking about magic in the sense that it is a delegitimized or a lesser form of religion. And what I try to tell people is that that is not necessarily true, right? This is how we have come to understand magic. But as with all concepts that have a really long history, magic is more than one thing. Shaley Patel is a professor of early Christianity at Virginia Tech. Next, we look at the Tao of Mr. Rogers. For a long time, 1968 to 2001, Mr. Rogers' neighborhood TV program defined generations of childhoods. My next guest is a philosophy and religion professor at Christopher Newport University. John Thompson says many of the life lessons Fred Rogers shared on the show embody the principles of an ancient Chinese tradition known as Taoism. John, did you watch Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood as a kid? Yes, I did. I probably watched too much uh, TV when I was a kid, but I definitely watched uh, Mr. Rogers, and I liked him. 
I really did. He was fun. There was something about the way he was. I mean, he 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 talked through the screen, uh, and uh, I could follow him. I understood what he was saying. I, I felt like he was talking to me. Do you remember some aspects of the show, looking back on your childhood now, as an adult man, and seeing Taoism through Mr. Rogers and through his actions in his show? Do you remember certain moments in particular? Well, um, for one thing, his uh, his childlike playfulness that was always present. Yes. And uh, the, the simplicity of it. I mean, it was just a very simple show, but I found it absolutely captivating. But I just loved the, the land of make-believe and the puppets. I, 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 I dug that <laughs> stuff. I still do. So tell me a little bit about Taoism. When did you first learn about Taoism? I think my first real exposure to Taoist notions came, again, through a TV show, uh, the 1970s uh, television show Kung Fu, starring uh, David Carradine, about a Buddhist monk wandering in the American West. And I was fascinated by all, you know, his, his Kung Fu karate stuff, but the philosophy and the way he was... Master, I am puzzled. That is the beginning of wisdom. I have seen you laugh, and I have seen you cry. And you do not. We are taught discipline. The purpose of discipline is to live more fully, not less. But how shall I know? If my sorrow is only the echo of self-pity, or my laughter, the preening of my own happiness, the bird sings in the forest. Does it seek to be admired for its song? Let tears come when your heart tells you of its sadness. Let joy come unasked, unplanned. He was very soft-spoken. He was very kind. He took a special care for uh, kids and for anyone in trouble. And he was always calm in the midst of whatever was going on, never violent except when he was attacked. And he was always trying to sh say that there are ways of being. You don't have to be like some of these bad cowboys or whatever. There's a phrase that Bruce Lee would use, be like water. Is that also sort of Taoist in its nature? Yeah, it really is. And Bruce Lee had, uh, of course, uh, he was uh, of Chinese heritage, but uh, he had uh, training in the uh, martial arts, which really arose and were heavily influenced by Taoism. Tao is often likened to water. Water is uh, is something that we all need, and it's it's, but we often don't notice it. And uh, I often tell my students, uh, if you're thinking about Tao, think about like water. If you're trying to swim. You need to just sort of relax into the water and let it hold you up, and then you can move through it. You can't fight it, otherwise you'll drown. So Tao is kind of like that. You have to kind of just let yourself be embraced by it, and then you can move with it. Is Tao, in, in the sense of Zen, is a way of being? Is Tao a way of being? I mean, the term literally, as a, as a Chinese term, it means like way or road or path. It's like a tendency of, of movement of energy. It's the sort of way that, at least for Taoists, that reality works. And uh, human beings can find their way to Tao by sort of just embracing it. There are some sort of natural ways, the ways of heaven and earth, that we can discern and move along with. And uh, the idea is that that is actually a, the truest life we can have. And who in the world tends to practice Taoism now? And who did traditionally? It's long been part of Chinese and indeed East Asian culture. It goes back thousands of years. It's actually over time changed and been institutionalized. So you actually have like Taoist temples and priesthoods and monasteries. 
and uh, it's gotten pretty complicated. But in essence, the uh, earliest stuff comes from just uh, some simple uh, practices and teachings in uh, a book, famous book people have heard of, the Tao Te Ching. That's the book of the way, Tao, and its power. Or uh, the book called uh, The Zhuangzi, and it's by uh, a legendary early Taoist thinker who is quite playful with his notion about how Tao works and uh, how Tao doesn't work the way we think it should. It's always undermining us, uh, and uh, it sort of laughs at us. You write about the lessons we can learn from Fred Rogers on Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. Oh, yeah. um, what is the Tao? of Fred Rogers. Oh, okay. Um, Dow of Fred Rogers is to be gentle, playful, authentically yourself without trying to impress anyone. But it was, there was actually a strength in the gentleness, an abiding strength. I mean, the guy had his TV show for, what, three decades? And um, he was doing things, I think, in a positive way, a way that encourages flourishing. And he especially saw that uh, younger people needed this. And uh, I guess that's, that's Fred Rogers' Dow, maybe. Describe a few things that Fred Rogers would do in this television show for toddlers that really grabs your attention if you want to look at it as sort of in keeping with Taoism. Well, um, as, as we all know, uh, the, the show itself is very simple. Right. Simple sets. Nothing flashy. It's just got Fred Rogers coming and he speaks directly to the camera to really, and I guess through the screen, to the kids. And when I was growing up watching him, I always thought he was talking directly to me. Mm. And he doesn't talk down. He's not faking it. I think in a famous interview, he says that kids can spot a phony a mile away. And I think that's probably why I was, even as a kid, I liked him because even as a kid, I found a lot of what people were doing around me just struck me as silly and kind of phony. And Fred Rogers never struck me that way. You know, he came in, he always was smiling. He, of course, had a little song to sing. You know, he did the usual thing. He changed his shoes and put on his cardigan. I love it that he just did these little simple things, but he took such delight in them. And he invited you. He say, what I'm doing? Oh, I got to feed the fish. And you could tell he was having a good time doing it. And that was so unlike what I often saw around me. That childlike wonder and delight in very simple things. He had his, his guests. He would talk to them, and uh, they liked him. He liked them. And this could sometimes be rather extraordinary. There's a scene in one of the episodes where Mr. Rogers is soaking his feet when a police officer, a friend of his, an African-American man, walks up, and Mr. Rogers invites him to soak his feet. I'd like to play that and then have you tell me the ways in which you think it is quintessentially Dow. Oh, yeah. Francois Clemens. Hi, welcome. Thank you. How you doing? Fine. How are you today? Fine. My feet were tired, so I thought I'd just soak them for a while in this water. Does it make him feel better? It does. Would you like to try? Sure. On the show, he would say, I love you just the way you are. One day, I said, Fred, were you talking to me? And he looked at me and he said, yes. I've been talking to you for two years, and you finally heard me today. And I just collapsed into his arms. I, was, I started crying. I, that's when I knew that I loved him. There are many ways to say I love you. There are many ways to say I care about you. No man had ever told me that he loved me like that. I needed to hear it all my life. My dad never told me. My stepfather never told me. So from then on, he became my surrogate father. I'm so proud of you, Francois. Oh, thank you, Fred. Wow. Wow. Yeah, that's a famous uh, scene. And uh, it's, uh, yeah, it's just, uh, even just hearing it, uh, it is quite moving, actually. Gives me chills. Again, it's tough to put it into words exactly. I would say Rogers was very gentle and inviting. 
and authentic and clearly cared about Officer Clemens. He wasn't trying to be a stereotypical American man. I mean, that's that, that's that strikes me as uh, as Dallas is sort of under undercutting this this machismo that is often uh, encouraged. This sort of forceful, kind of stoic, aggressive. Doubt doesn't work that way, and Rogers is just sort of sort of going with it. And then at the very end, he is using a towel to wipe off Francois's bare feet. Oh, yes, that's right. Yeah. Um, and it's just uh, because it's, yeah, this is what you do when your friend's over. If you're soaking your feet, well, you got to dry your feet. So, yeah, of course, it doesn't matter who, who or what you are. You're my friend. Let's just do this. He's undermining these, these stereotypes about what a, what a man, American man, should be. And he's showing us this is, this is a different way. Maybe it's a better way to be. How is it a different take on American cultural norms? What do you think those cultural norms are still in America of how a man should be? It's still really, in some respects, maybe gotten a little worse. It's still this idea of being forceful and competitive and and striving for accomplishment. It's all very artificial. It's all ego-based. And certainly what you see with a lot of Taoist teachings and practices is kind of undermining that, getting away from that. Actually, Taoist, uh, um, a lot of images are of gentleness and even uh, the feminine. Although Rogers, I mean, he gets made fun of for some of his, his mannerisms. Uh, the truth of the matter is he stuck around for a long time and was the, I would say he's the antithesis of American celebrities. What do you see among your students? Um, religiously and spiritually, and I don't mean like, you know, hey, they are all this or that, but what are you noticing among your students? Do you find that their, their hunger or neediness emotionally has changed in recent years? I think it has. I think it has changed. Uh, and perhaps the uh, the pandemic has certainly had a lot to do with that. They're also, but students um, these days are, the ones I'm encountering don't have a lot of formal religious background, but they are really hungering for human connection and uh, for a type of, you know, I would say a, a care. They want to care about each other. And uh, I should say Taoism also has a lot to do with nature. And uh, definitely the uh, climate issues are uh, weighing on everybody's mind. And uh, so I think they gravitate towards some of these ideas. Well, John Thompson, thank you for talking with me and with good reason. Oh, well, thank you for the opportunity. I really appreciate it. John Thompson is a philosophy and religion professor at Christopher Newport University. This is With Good Reason. We'll be right back. Welcome back to With Good Reason from Virginia Humanities. Does God exist? This is the question humankind has grappled with since time immemorial. And depending on our answer, we typically align ourselves with one of three camps, theist, agnostic, or atheist. In his latest book, Is There a God? A Debate, Kenny Pierce, a believer, debates his colleague Graham Oppie, an avowed atheist, on the existence of God and the merits of believing in a higher being. Kenny Pierce is a philosophy professor at James Madison University. Kenny, as a Christian, you argue God is the answer to the deepest question of all. Why is there something rather than nothing? Yes. So the question is, when we look at the world, we see, obviously, that it's here, but also that it could have been otherwise in various ways. I didn't have to be doing this interview right now, for instance, or didn't have to write this book and so the universe could have gone differently than it did. And that is what philosophers call contingency. And the claim that's made in the argument from contingency, as it's known, is that God, as a being who chooses this universe for reasons, from among other options, is that kind of answer 
that can explain why there's something rather than nothing, why the universe is as it is, while still allowing that things could be otherwise. Share with me Graham's largest and most compelling arguments as an avowed atheist. What would he say about contingency? And would he say contingency is really explained by the Big Bang Theory, that the universe started in a way that scientists can explain? Yes. He thinks that the kind of earliest portion of the universe and the laws of nature are absolutely necessary. They couldn't have been different in any way. So there's no contingency to explain there when it comes to the origination of our universe. And he thinks that by saying that those things are necessary and couldn't have been otherwise, that's all we need to do to explain them. But his view of the world will still allow for contingency because the laws of current physics are not fully deterministic laws. That is, there's more than one way history can go given an initial state because the laws of quantum physics involve probabilities. And so there are these probabilities involved in how the universe unfolds, and that allows that some things at least could have been otherwise than they are, according to Graham's view. Share with me some of the greatest thinkers on this subject, atheist and theist alike. Sure. If I was beginning with the theists and particularly those who have been focused on this question of contingency, that is how we can fully explain the world while still recognizing that it could have been different somehow. The thinkers who come to my mind are Ibn Sina and Thomas Aquinas. Ibn Sina was a Muslim philosopher who lived around the year 1000, and he's trying to put together these kind of ideas that he's inheriting from ancient Greek philosophy together with his commitments as a Muslim and understand how we would find this ultimate explanation of the dependent things in the world, the things that come to be as a result of causes like you and me. How could we find an ultimate explanation of all of those? And his key insistence is that this ultimate explanation must be one. It must be ultimately unified and having no parts. And it must be absolutely necessary so that it couldn't have been different. And that's how he identifies God. These ideas of uh, Ibn Sina are having a very important influence on Thomas Aquinas, who is a Christian philosopher born in Italy, writing mainly in the 13th century. And Aquinas very famously gives five ways, what he calls the five ways for proving the existence of God, one of which is this argument from contingency, or maybe a few of them are variants on the argument from contingency, the question why there is a world at all and why it is as it is. But what's interesting to me is that he thinks, Aquinas thinks that he proves the existence of the being who is in fact God five times in one paragraph but he spends another couple thousand pages trying to show that this first cause, this ultimate explanation, actually is anything like the concept of God that he's inherited from the Christian tradition. And so for Aquinas, and I think this is, is quite important in this discussion, proving that there is some kind of ultimate explanation in a necessary being is the fast and easy part and showing that it's anything like a religious concept of God is the very, very hard part. And I think this connects up with the kind of disagreement that I have with, with Graham about how to understand this ultimate explanation. So who would you put forward as the greatest thinkers on the non-existence of God? So 
one person I think needs to be mentioned is David Hume. He was an 18th century Scottish philosopher, and he is especially important in his criticism of the view that this world is the creation of a single intelligent designer. Hume thinks that these theists are jumping to conclusions by supposing that because some parts of the world are very impressive, therefore the world as a whole must have one designer, that is God. He thinks we can think of all sorts of other explanations for why the world is as it is, especially given that not all parts of it are equally impressive. So if we're going to think about agents, about beings who might be designers with some degree of intelligence, think about all the kinds of products of design that we're familiar with. We might suppose, Hume says, that it's like shipbuilding, where there's a whole tradition of shipbuilding that's been figured out over centuries by trial and error, and maybe our world is made by some apprentice, and it's that apprentice's first try. Huh. Or maybe our world is a group project, and you know that in every group project, there's always one person who's not doing their job. And maybe that explains why our world is so imperfect. A second thinker who's quite important in the atheistic camp, I would mention, is Pierre-Simon Laplace, a French physicist of the early 19th century. He became a kind of symbol of scientific atheism because of a famous story about a conversation he supposedly had with Napoleon. Laplace had published a book called The System of the World. And Napoleon had asked him how he could write this whole long work, The System of the World, without so much as mentioning God. And Laplace is supposed to have answered, I had no need of that hypothesis. And this supposed conversation between Napoleon and Laplace, I think, encapsulates some of the, the thinking behind the rise of what we might call scientific atheism or the idea that modern scientific thinking should reject God. The idea is simply that physicists and other scientists who are trying to provide these explanations of the world can do all of their work without appealing to God. And that, according to many modern thinkers, is reason enough to reject God. What was your own experience? I think you grew up in an evangelical childhood. Did you enjoy that community and spiritual environment? I certainly still to this day feel that I got a lot of benefit out of that kind of environment. Something that I found frustrating as a teenager was that I found people in that community said very simplistic things and their lives were never that simple. And I think that with some maturity and philosophical reflection, I've recognized that the ways they lived were often better than the things they said. And what I mean by this is that a message was conveyed to me as a young person that for us as Christians, we simply read the Bible as the word of God and God tells us what to do and we just go do it as though I as a, as a teenager reading an English translation of the Bible alone in my room or whatever could find instructions for how to live my life. When I looked at what people were actually doing in the community, it was never that simple because these people had a lived experience. People older than me, you see, had a lived experience of trying to live in the world as people committed to Christ's ideal of love. And that experience of the complexities of life complicated what they were hearing as they read that Christian message in the Bible. 
And so nothing is ever as simple as those kind of straightforward readings. And instead, I guess what I've come to understand is that what people did, even if it's not what they said, is to view the reading of the Bible as a kind of practice of spiritual formation rather than as a repository of truths and commands that can be simply read off the text. And there's a kind of spiritual engagement with the text that shapes us toward that ideal of universal love that Christians take to be the core message. Kenny Pierce is a philosophy professor at James Madison University and co-author of Is There a God? A Debate. Buddhism is widely known as a peaceful tradition, deeply committed to nonviolence. But my next guest says Buddhism actually has a lot to teach about warfare. Christy Kilby is a religion professor at James Madison University. She consults for the International Committee of the Red Cross, exploring connections between Buddhism and the laws of war. Yeah, I'm focusing on international humanitarian law, which is the norms that the global community has created for actually for millennia, even though they've only been codified for, you know, 100, 200 years. Who did codify them? These laws were codified in the Geneva Conventions beginning in 1864. These norms govern the conduct of war. They serve to protect civilians. They serve to limit the methods and means of warfare. They also serve to preserve humanity and dignity for those affected by armed conflict. I think every person deserves to learn about this important part of our human story, that every nation across the globe at one point in history gathered together and decided that in the face of the worst atrocities post-World War II that we had seen, we were going to create an aspiration for something better. So you consult for the International Committee of the Red Cross, which is interested in hearing what Buddhism has to say about warfare. Why is the Red Cross interested in that? The Red Cross internationally has been working with many different religious groups, not just Buddhists. They've been involved with religious groups for a couple reasons. One is that they know that religious people are usually the first to arrive and the last to leave when there is suffering or conflict or disaster. Religious organizations, they've been humanitarian providers long before the International Red Cross existed. So these are important collaborators. But also, the International Red Cross knows that religious people are very deeply networked and they have so much influence. So when we think about international humanitarian norms, it's not just a matter of legal compliance. It's a matter of motivating people across the world to recognize their own ethics and their own identity in these norms so that they self-regulate and self-implement them during times of conflict. What have you found might be instructive for the Red Cross to adopt or consider or understand about Buddhism as you've looked into this whole thing? I've been part of a big collaboration that involves Buddhist monks and nuns, scholars like me, lawyers, also military commanders and international you know, NGO workers. It's been a very broad collaboration, and we've learned a lot from each other. We have, bring really different perspectives. You know, some folks, particularly the monks and nuns, are sometimes reluctant to think about how Buddhism can influence war because they are living a life dedicated to nonviolence, and it's, it's painful to, to bring the tradition into conversation with violence. But on the other hand, we also have military commanders and soldiers who are Buddhist. You know, every Buddhist country in the world has a military. And Buddhists serve in these militaries. And they have to find ways to integrate their ethics and their values into their work as professional military people. And so bringing Buddhism onto the battlefield might feel unnerving at first, but when we deconstruct this idea of the battlefield a little bit, we know that actually Buddhism was designed to alleviate suffering. And it was designed for contexts of suffering. That's what the whole tradition was based on. The Buddha says, I came to teach suffering and the end of suffering. 
And so the battlefield is exactly where Buddhism needs to be, actually, from a religious perspective. What do you make of this? I know you feel this way, too. We have the Geneva Conventions. We have this code of conduct for conducting war on an international humanitarian level. And yet you've got, let's say, the Ukrainian conflict with lots of civilian death and involvement and carelessness and massive destruction willy-nilly of the landscape. How helpful are these laws? It's great for us all to be thinking of them, those of us not engaging in war. But are they useful? When we step back and think about how hard it is to get states to agree on anything, I mean, it's even hard to get members of one family to agree on anything. The Geneva Conventions were ratified by the entire international community. That's miraculous. They're not always implemented. There are mechanisms for adjudication and punishment and prosecuting war crimes. That's part of the process. And I expect that those legal consequences are already unfolding and will continue to do so in the Russia-Ukraine conflict. But it's about more than punishment. You know, these, these norms only work if we continue to uphold them, even if the other side doesn't. That's how they function. It's about humanity. It's about knowing that we cannot sacrifice our basic human commitment to each other's worth. That's a powerful thing to say, that we uphold them even if the other side doesn't. Even if the other side doesn't. What are some more Buddhist texts that you think have something to say about the principles of warfare? There are so many Buddhist scriptures. It's been a real joy to work with different different scholars and teachers unpacking some of these texts. One story that I really like is about, it's called the Angulimala Sutra, but it's about a, it's about a serial killer during the time of the Buddha. And he, uh, he was rampaging throughout the countryside, killing people and cutting off their fingers and wearing them as a necklace. So we have this really gruesome image. Now, this was not an international conflict, but the Buddha was interested in solving this problem of violence. So he approached this killer and convinced him to throw away his weapons and to become an ordained monk. Now, this is interesting. This is just the beginning of the story. The king comes looking for this killer because the king is ready to take him out. The civilians have been crying for protection. And so the king rouses his army and goes looking for this killer and is ready to to kill him, to protect his people. Now, what's interesting here is the way the Buddha talks to the king. So the Buddha convinces the king. He doesn't convince him not to fight. He doesn't tell him to disband his army. He knows that it's actually the king's job to protect his people. And the king is doing what's probably right. However, the Buddha convinces the king that if Angulimala is no longer armed and dangerous, if he is wearing the robes of a monk, then he should spare him. And this is this critical moment that we see codified in international humanitarian law as well. It's called the principle of distinction. It means that those engaged in conflict and hostilities always must distinguish between civilian and military. And they should never target civilians or civilian objects. They can only target military. And so in that moment, when the Buddha is talking to the king, he's convincing the king to adopt this principle of distinction And the king refrains from violence. He self-restrains the same way that we hope all armed groups will restrain themselves according to humanitarian norms during times of war. And he lets Angulimala be the serial killer. And so he, he continues in the monastery, a changed man, presumably. One of the things you've looked at in Buddhism are the five unrighteous professions and how that might relate to how Buddhism informs the conduct of war. So according to the Buddhist tradition, there, there's something called right livelihood, meaning there's certain righteous ways to make a living. But there are five livelihoods that are identified as wrong. And surprisingly, being a soldier is not one of them. And so this is another doorway into that conversation between Buddhism and international humanitarian law. And the Buddha himself was from a military caste, right? He was. He was from a warrior caste, the ruling caste, charged with waging battle. In fact, at one time, he even prevents a war between his own people, his own caste and clan, 
and another another neighboring group, the Kalingas. He never escaped warfare. Even when he went on his quest for religious liberation and peace, he was still involved advising kings, trying to prevent conflict, and trying to promote his teachings wherever he could. Do you think that Buddhism can help the mental state of combatants, soldiers on the battlefield, and soldiers enduring the constant stress and emotional and ethical challenges they're engaged in? Yeah, I think it's so important to remember, for those of us who are not military professionals, the kind of stress and sacrifice that these people make every day. Moral injury is a topic we talk a lot about now, right? The, the trauma that soldiers experience when they, they have to do things on the battlefield that run contrary to their moral instincts and their moral values leads to a lot of depression and PTSD and sometimes suicide. So one topic that's been very fruitful in this, this project with the International Red Cross has been how Buddhism can help support the health of soldiers and help th empower them to uphold their ethical commitments, even as soldiers, to embody restraint, nonviolence as far as possible, given their line of work and their obligations, but also upholding humanitarian norms and the kind of dignity and compassion that international humanitarian law facilitates can be a very rich resource for supporting Buddhist soldiers through an extremely trying profession. Christy Kilby is a religion professor at James Madison University. With Good Reason is produced by Virginia Humanities, which acknowledges the Monacan Nation, the original people of the land and waters of our home in Charlottesville, Virginia. Our production team is Allison Quantz, Matt Darrow, Lauren Francis, and Jamal Milner. Cassandra Deering and Aviva Casto are our interns. Special thanks to Jenny Taylor for booking assistance. For the podcast or to comment, go to withgoodreasonradio.org. I'm Sarah McConnell. Thanks for listening.